This is a special bonus episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. And so you don't miss regular features like History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. You're listening to a special Pope in America edition of The History Author Show on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite entertainment outlet. Thanks so much for joining us. Pope Francis began his visit to the United States on September 22, 2015, with stops in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., New York City, the capital of the world, and Philadelphia. Top on his agenda were calls for Americans to spend more on the poor. But what about the church's finances? How did a humble ministry, started by St. Paul 2,000 years ago, grow into the largest and wealthiest on earth? Attorney, best-selling author, and award-winning investigative journalist Gerald Posner explores that question in his book, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. It's a book not about faith, but finances. And it begs the question, can the man called the People's Pope, Francis, overcome the resistance to change in the Vatican's inner court and rein in some of these financial excesses? Can the new pontiff, in short, succeed where all his predecessors failed? You'll find questions like these and many facts to go along with them at Posner.com and by following today's guest at Gerald Posner on Twitter. The Providence Journal called God's Bankers as exciting as a mystery thriller. And when I read that, I thought, Who better to interview Gerald Posner than my friend, thriller author Tom Grace, who you can visit at TomGrace.net. Among Tom's best-selling novels, and my personal favorite in his Nolan Kilkenny series, is The Secret Cardinal. It's an adventure that races from the grandeur of the Vatican across the vastness of Asia, ultimately involving China, the Mafia, and the conclave of cardinals that elects the new pope. Tom has vast knowledge of the Catholic Church, so I knew that he and Gerald Posner would have a lot to talk about. So I figured I'd just sit back with all of you and enjoy their fascinating conversation. Here they are, Tom Grace, thriller author, and Gerald Posner, author of God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. I'm on the line with Gerald Posner, author of God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. Thank you for joining me on the History Author Show, Gerald. Tom, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, I know we're doing this via phone, and it would be much more interesting if we could say that we were sitting somewhere in Rome with a nice view of the Vatican, having this discussion over a fine Barolo, or perhaps in honor of the Pope's visit to the United States, uh, that would make it a real treat, no doubt about it. Even if we didn't have a view over the Vatican, just being in Rome and having a fine Barolo and talking about it would, it would be almost enough. Yep. Of course, the other interesting place that might be with maybe perhaps in the grotto itself, way down in front of the tomb of St. Peter, where here this humble fisherman 
followed his leader's admonition and, and went out to the world with nothing more than his shoes on his feet to preach the good news. And a few stories above him is the opulent splendor of the Vatican City and all the grist of money and power that became the basis of your book. Yeah, something that I'm sure that Peter could, I mean, even if he had a vivid imagination, he clearly saw things that you know are hard for us to imagine, but it would be almost impossible for him to have envisioned that the word that he was taking out and bringing to the European continent from the Middle East was going to eventually blossom into what was, until just the last few decades, the world's biggest religion, and now is number two, you know, not far behind Islam. But it's you're right, the particular opulence and sort of uh, power of the Vatican, both as a religion and as a sovereign country, is very, very well represented in uh, the structures of uh, St. Peter's Basilica and Vatican City. Well, the very irony of it, too, because here's a Jewish fisherman coming out to the heart of the, the evil <laughs> empire, basically, in his time. And 300 years later, the evil empire has recognized Christianity, not only recognizing it, but codifying it, giving it an organizational structure, which remains to the day. And after Rome fell, the church basically inherited what was left of the Western Empire. And so here, this little fisherman has now found something that's called the Holy Roman Church. It's unimaginable. And it's so interesting to think that, in some ways, the church that Peter found this rock is the survivor. The Roman Empire fell, the Huns came in, they didn't last, the Moors came in, they didn't last, the great empires around the Holy Roman Empire fell, from the French kings to the Austrian-Hungarian empires. The British Empire, which certainly lasted a long time, then crumbled apart, and here the survivor is 2,000 years later, is in fact the church may be stronger than it was, certainly not stronger in terms of a secular power, not when it rivaled as a kingdom and the popes were kings and they had their own empire, the papal states, 15,000 square miles of Italy, but certainly rivaling anything that the Church was in the past in terms of its religious power and in terms of its financial clout, having as much as ever in terms of both its private wealth and its charitable organizations. Yeah, in looking at the growth of the papal states and certainly the owning most of Italy for the longest time, and then suddenly they're being shrunk down to you know, 400 acres in the middle of Rome and a few little parcels around the country. I guess the question I have is: the Church actually have more wealth now than it did when it controlled all that real estate and basically was a large country that had a standing army and a navy and and everything that goes along with being a country? Yeah, you know, you ask a great question, one that's almost probably impossible to do the comparison to in terms of apples and oranges because. When they had their own army and they had their own empire and country and they were levying taxes, there was in some ways no limit to what their amount of money or power was because they could continue to push it and expand it and increase what they wanted and needed as revenues by putting in more fees and taxes. They lost that, and once they did lose that in 1870, when Italy sort of had the revolt and became one country and they get down, as you said, to 400 acres on this little patch of land in the heart of Rome called Vatican City, they lost something that's hard to put into dollars and cents, but certainly in terms of real secular power, their height was before 1870. Yeah, it actually was a good thing from the point of view of faith in releasing all that extra secular baggage so they could focus on their core business, which in theory is trying to get as many souls into heaven as possible. But with any religion, whether it's a, a little country church or a Buddhist temple up in the middle of the mountains or the universal Catholic church, there's a business side to it. You have to pay the rent. You have to put a roof over the head. You got to cover the light bill. And all those operational things that happen in the secular world are magnified when you're dealing with an organization that's a single entity that has a 1.1 billion adherents, and like the British Empire before it, you know, the sun never sets on the Catholic Church. 
Right. But what's interesting is that I think for a long time, uh, having to worry about paying the bills and, you know, uh, what the cost was for uh, all these different items sort of got lost under the fact that when they did have the papal states, they were able to, they ran deficits occasionally because they got too large. They had 800 adherents, servants, aides, assistants. At one point with the papal court, it was larger than any royal court in Europe in the 1700s. So it was far too large, and they were still hemorrhaging money occasionally. But that notwithstanding, having an empire makes up for a host of bad spending and bad economic decisions. They didn't really have to confront what to do until after they lost that empire. And then, as you well know, for a while they were it was a combination. It was a hodgepodge they put together of selling indulgences, these chits of paper that forgive sort of uh, sins committed, and at the same time raising money for the Pope by saying he was a prisoner in Vatican City and having something called Peter's Pence uh, contributions from the faithful revive this old Anglo-Saxon project and, and sending him a lot of money. But in the end, they had to do something that the popes of the 18th century looked down on with disdain, and that was they had to slowly start to embrace capitalism. I mean, they didn't like the idea of capitalism. They thought it was somehow the province of heretical Jews and uh, or heretical Protestants, really, and Jews. And the uh, encouraged free thinking and modernism, a whole host of things that the popes of that era didn't like. It broke the rules against usury, loaning money at interest, which the Catholics thought was bad. And uh, But by the 20th century, you see this inexorable slide toward the Vatican, toward eventually doing a little bit of capitalism and a little bit more. And by the middle of the 20th century, as you know, they formed the Vatican Bank in World War II and this sort of capitalism on steroids from that point on. Yeah, and as European monarchs, they weren't alone in this sort of disdain of capitalism and certainly the growth of things like the merchant class. You see a lot of countries rebelling, trying to hold off that from happening. Whereas other countries like the Netherlands and all that embraced it suddenly became superpowers or Venice you know, became a very powerful city-state. Exactly. Whereas other countries, they couldn't embrace capitalism, couldn't understand it. And like many monarchs of the time, they would get themselves indebted to groups, whether it's Jewish bankers that were allowed to charge interest or to the Knights Templar, and then you'd have a pogrom. they get rid of those people because you didn't want to That's pay right. the debt. It was so fascinating because the Vatican often did renege on some of its debts, would cancel it out. You would think they would be such a terrible credit risk that nobody would, in fact, loan to them. But they were, after all, open in religion and the country, so they were able to get loans even at times when they had a fairly bad credit history. To the great chagrin of many of the top cardinals, I mean, two popes had to end up borrowing from the Rothschilds. So as you said, in part, the Jews of ghettos in European cities weren't allowed to be members of the guild in the crafts from everything from whether it was in a whole host of professions that you could be in. There was the equivalent of the AFL-CIO, the labor unions that sort of control the business, but the workers' guilds, you couldn't. And so as a result, you were in the ghetto. And one of the things that they were allowed to do is, as Jews in those European ghettos was finance that was considered usurious. They could loan it interest. They became expert at it in many ways. And when the walls of the ghettos fell after the French Revolution started, families like the Rothschilds, Amschel Rothschild and his five children, walked out of that Frankfurt ghetto, a great uprisings after 1789, and within a generation were the largest merchant banking dynasty in Europe, which was an astonishing feat. The Vatican had to go to them twice to borrow money, and there were a lot of senior clerics in the Vatican that didn't like that. And uh, it was one of those humbling moments for the church to actually have to ask for the handouts and then pay them back. Yeah, it's one of the great historical ironies, too, because when you, when you think about Christ on the cross, and the, one of the very last things he did is he forgave everybody. And yet they're hanging this over the head of an entire race of people for a thousand years afterwards. 
The, uh, you know, it's very interesting because, of course, forgiveness is easier said than done. And certainly in the case, it's very interesting to watch the interplay between the Rothschilds and the Popes because, on the one hand, senior Catholics and old-time traditionists just were horrified at the fact that the Rothschilds were visiting the Vatican and were being embraced by the Pope in order to get a loan, to get two loans. And the Rothschilds were pressured by members of the Jewish community who thought that they, instead of just loaning money and making interest upon the Vatican, should be pushing for rights of Jews in different cities. And so eventually the Rothschilds asked Leo XIII to see if he would roll back the wall that had been built around Rome's Jewish ghetto, which is actually the first walled-in ghetto in Europe, the oldest anyway. And the Pope did that temporarily, or at least promised to. And then once the loan was repaid, it was never done. So as a practical matter, both sides were pressured by people that weren't that happy at the relationship. It wasn't just the Vatican that had some people displeased. Now, it's interesting, we talked about this a little bit off here, about the fact that when you have a book that's dealing with God's bankers, that has the Vatican in the title, people you know, begin to think it's a book about religion or about faith. And this book is decidedly secular, and it really deals with the human side of the church. What's the old line? That faith is a gift from God, but religion is the work of man. And this book focuses strictly on the work of man and the business of operating a religion, or in this case, a religion and a city-state for the longest time. That transition from being a huge country with all the issues of a country to being a very small principality, basically a a company unto itself in terms of logistics. It's, It's not part of any other country, so it can have its own property and set up its own bank and then the issues that roll along with that. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because I do find that you're right. It's not at all about religion. I was born Catholic. I went to eight years of grammar school with Sisters of Charity and four years of high school with Jesuits. I was an altar boy. So I'm what I call, I'm not a practicing Catholic today, but I'm cultural Catholic. I was steeped in Catholicism growing up. I understand the faith and the religion as it was taught to me and from a cultural perspective very, very strongly and intimately, I think, as you do when you have that background until you go to college. But I also think that I underestimated as a child the extent to which it was a secular entity. I thought of it only as a religion. And in this book, I turn away from the questions of faith. It has nothing to do with whether you think Jesus Christ is the Savior or he's not, or you happen to think the Catholic Church is the one true religion and the Pope is the Vicar of Christ, or you don't think that. It happens to be, as you said, just about how fallible these men are who run the Church, and no matter how good their intentions are, and often they are very good, when you have billions of dollars involved, as you have eventually inside the Vatican Bank, and you have them running in the dark with no oversight and no transparency, even if 80% or 85% of them are doing the right thing, there's still going to be 10, 15, or 20% that aren't doing the right thing, and that's exactly what happens. Human nature shows itself that even in places like Vatican City, Money and no oversight and human nature is often a bad combination. And when you're dealing with people who aren't steeped in international finance or even balancing a checkbook, and they're suddenly in charge of these things, a lot can be done that they have no idea. Just As long as they trust the people who are handling it, things are flowing in and out, and you end up with things like the Bank of Brasino scandal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Tom, it's interesting you say that because there is this period in when the Vatican Bank is founded in World War II in the middle of the war, I mean, the person who's running it, he had been running it really since 1930 and on, the finances and then he forms the bank, is Bernardino Nogaro, who really is a financial wizard. He's a layman who really knows what he's doing and he's remarkable. He sets up a, he's doing early arbitrage before most people knew what arbitrage was. He's investing in real estate in a very stable, long-term, great AAA investments. And when he leaves the Vatican in the late 50s, 
goes through this period when there's nobody really in charge, and then eventually the person who gets in charge is a cleric, an American, Bishop Marchinkus, and despite any good intentions he had, he readily admitted he knew virtually nothing about banking or financing, wrote a few books about it, and he did get involved with a few Italian businessmen who were real sharks, one of whom ends up dead under a London bridge running Banco Ambrosiano, one of Italy's largest banks, and another who was one of Italy's most successful businessmen, highly praised, who ends up dead of a, a cyanide poisoning after he's sentenced to a long prison sentence for having killed the prosecutor who was trying to make a case against him, ruled a suicide. So Marchinkus, running the Vatican Bank, gets involved with some very unsavory characters. The Vatican Bank ends up paying a quarter billion dollars, which is a lot of money for them back in the 80s, to settle a whole host of charges by these banks that they were part of a fraud. And then the head of the bank, Marchinkus, the bishop gets indicted with his two top lay assistants. It'd be like the head of the Federal Reserve getting indicted here in the U.S. with that gets indicted for fraudulent bankruptcy and, and different types of fraud. And the Vatican protects him by keeping him inside Vatican City as opposing to let the Italians have him. So you're right. The untrained, unsophisticated clerics running the finances of the Vatican turned out to be for decades a recipe for disaster. Now, Marchinkas is gone. You would think the Vatican would have learned its lesson, but when Marchinkas leaves in the late 80s, they have a couple of more heads of the Vatican Bank that leave under clouds as well. So they may finally be getting it right there, but it's taken them the better part of 70 years. Yes, I guess it's kind of hard to take somebody who's worked his way up through the theology school and the seminaries and, and studied religion and get them to get an MBA in international finance as well. I mean, it's, it's, that's a tough combination to pull together. Yeah, but you know, you're right, Tom, but the thing about the Vatican that's unusual is that there are a number of things that are unusual, but one of the things that strikes me all the time is that here you have this small city-state, two-thirds of a mile wide. You walk across in 15 minutes if you're doing a slow stroll, and it has 750, 800. It varies a little bit depending upon the year, but let's say 800 men running Vatican City. That's the entire size of the population there, and they're all men. There are some women there. There are some wives, some of the lay employees, but the people actually running the operations are men. Most of them are clerics, and some are laymen, Catholics. The same people make the decision both on the religious side of the ledger and on the secular side. What I mean is the same cardinal, maybe, for instance, who is involved with questions of faith is at the same time wearing a different hat, and if he's in the Secretary of State's office or the bishop is or the Monsignor, they're making decisions on what the Vatican should be doing at the United Nations where it has permanent observer status or what it should be doing regarding recognizing or not recognizing the Palestinian Authority. So they have no training as diplomats, necessarily. They're trained in theology, they understand it, and then they do take additional courses in this classic education. But they have to wear two hats in running the government of the Vatican and running the religion. So I guess that's why the Pope's never thought it was a big stretch to have them run the bank as well. They're already running the government, they might as well run the bank. They just weren't able to do it very well on the secular side, may not be at the same purpose as your religion side, as the faith side. If, if your goal is to try and get souls into heaven, how does this apparatus help you do that, or how does it hinder that activity? So you might find yourself at cross-purposes. And certainly, you know, running this whole political operation through the, the Second World War was a great difficulty for the Vatican and the Vatican Bank because they were surrounded by 
fascists and dealing with the devil you know versus the devil you're even more afraid of, which is the Bolsheviks. Yeah, there's no question that the Vatican, Pope Pius, who had been the papal nuncio before he was Secretary of State to Germany, and so his closest advisors were Germany, liked Germany, he spoke German fluently. He was much more terrified, as were most of the cardinals of Stalin and the Bolsheviks, were absolute atheists. They knew that the Nazis were a group of mostly lapsed Catholics or Lutherans. There was always the thought in the back of their mind, maybe despite their reverence of state, they could be brought back to some form of Christianity. They knew that was impossible with the Bolsheviks, so they really were afraid of them. And I think that in some ways, I wouldn't say they were surrounded by fascism, although they were in the center of Rome, and Rome was the capital of fascist Italy. It was, after all, the Vatican that struck a deal with them in 1929, in which Pius XI strikes a deal with Mussolini that the country was 97% Italian at the time. Mussolini needed the Vatican as much as the Vatican needed El Duce. So he gets the support of the Vatican, which solidifies his grip on power in Italy. And they, the Vatican, get acknowledged again as a sovereign nation. Now, they lose it in 1870. We talked about it before. They had the papal states, and they lose their sovereignty, and they're no longer a nation at all. There is no sovereign Vatican, Vatican City, or Vatican, the papal states, till 1929. Mussolini grants it back to them. And in that moment, although they are the size of a postage stamp, they have all the power of being an independent country. That gives them great authority and sway. To me, it's the much better deal was struck by the Vatican in that. And then in 1933, they strike the first deal with Hitler. Hitler's the new chancellor of Germany in 33. The Vatican was the first country, because by then they were a country, since 29 and on, to recognize Hitler and strike a deal with him. And it was a sort of a moral victory for Hitler. And in return, Hitler gave them a number of things, including collecting at the source what had been a voluntary contribution of 8 to 10% of a salary of a German Catholic was sent in as sort of a contribution annually for 20 or 30 years since Bismarck's days to Rome, and Germans would sometimes do it and sometimes not. Hitler agreed to collect the tax at its source, like a payroll tax, and send it straight to Rome, which he did. In the middle of the war, they were collecting about $100 million a year, a staggering amount. So I think that even their view, Tom, of being surrounded by fascism. Remember, the fascists that were there were Italian fascists, and the cardinals who were around Pope Pius XII, mostly Italian, many came from patrician Italian families. These would be five, six, seven children, four or five sons, and one son would end up going into the church and become a bishop or a cardinal. Another son would become the head of a local bank. Another son would become an attorney. Another son would go into politics. So you had inside the Vatican in, during the war cardinals who were Italian whose brothers were on the other side of the wall working and fighting for the Italian fascist regime. So I think that it was hard for them to be neutral, even though technically they were, because they were Italian in the end. Well, they were Italian, and, and they were European, so as you said, the Pope was very friendly with Germany. Everybody in the Vatican, essentially being Italian, that was their family on the other side. Right. It's sort of its own form of the mafia, in, in a way, with these Italian families, and you see that going back to the Borgias as well. It's a sort of organizational control of the assets. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, and it's very interesting because the Treasury Department in the United States passed a series of laws starting in 1941, sort of the blacklist, and that trying to put countries that were doing business with the Germans and with the Italians on a so-called blacklist and making it much tougher for them to do business. And eventually, the Treasury Department in the U.S., under these laws, put every neutral European country, even tiny ones, that claimed they were neutral on that blacklist. Switzerland got listed, and then Liechtenstein, and then Luxembourg, San Marino, tiny San Marino, Monaco got listed, Andorra got listed. 
every country except for the Vatican. The Vatican was the only one that did not get listed, and that's because the Roosevelt administration said, you know what, it's a religion. They'll stay neutral. And that was a great power to them. And in the middle of the war in 42, they formed the Vatican Bank in part to continue to play sort of both sides because they're not sure who's going to win. So they do what you expect in the case of the man who was running the finances, a smart financier to do. He says, I'm not sure if the Allies are winning the Axis power. So let's sort of invest in both. And then when he sees the wars going against the Axis powers and the Germans in 43 and 44, really mostly 44, he starts to peel away those investments. At the end of the war, the Vatican just says, we were neutral. And that's the end of it as far as they were concerned. And from FDR's point of view, he had a very good friend in Pope Pius. Not only gave him the support of the Catholics, it actually promoted his re-election bid, but shut down Father Coughlin here, who's just a few miles right. from where I'm at here in Michigan, who had a very powerful radio program that ran across the country. And he just told him to knock it off, and Father Coughlin turned the radio off, and that was the end of it. Yeah, and it was absolutely fantastic. As a matter of fact, that was Pius' trip to America in the 30s when he was still Pacelli before he'd become Pope. He'd come over here as Secretary of State, and one of the things when he finally got up to Hyde Park and met with Roosevelt and everything else, it was a very quick response by him, and Roosevelt remembered that for a long time. Once Pius became Pope, one of the very few times in Vatican history that a Pope has ever endorsed a president, he actually endorsed Franklin Roosevelt in the second election around. So Roosevelt liked the Pope, had met him before he was Pope, and thought that the Church was a very good ally, so he cut them a lot of slack. All right. Well, my guest is Gerald Posner, author of God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. And again, I'm Tom Grace, thriller author and your fill-in correspondent. You can find me online at tomgrace.net. You can follow Gerald at posner.com or at Gerald Posner on Twitter. I'm really enjoying talking to you. It's so great. Well, it's fun. It's fun. And we both have the same Catholic background coming into this. Yeah, oh, very interesting. All right. I was going to ask you at some point yet if you were or were not Catholic. So you, you understand that background. I understand it. And a lot of this has been eye-opening. Certainly the German payroll tax. I can just imagine, in addition to FICA and the various Medicare taxes and state and federal taxes, Detroit taxes, having my Catholic church tax on my pay, on my pay stub at the end of the week. It's really remarkable. I must tell you, you know, it's interesting you say that, but one of the, you say to me, one of the things you're surprised with, there are a number of things that surprised me along the way, but one of the things that surprised me was the church tax in Germany, that it wasn't discussed more often. I hadn't heard about it that much. I mean, you, obviously, once you start to search it, then you find quite a bit on it. But I was surprised that in all the books and articles I've read and the debates that I've seen by historians, both proponents and opponents of Pius XII are very passionate. Those who say that the wartime pope did as much as he could to help stop the civilian slaughter taking place in Europe in the Holocaust, and those who say he didn't do enough, that he was too quiet. I've heard a lot of reasons for those who say he was quiet, and they'll talk about his fear of Bolshevism, that he thought he was going to be made a prisoner or possibly killed and taken back to Germany, that the Nazis would move against German Catholics, that they would lock up and send to concentration camps all the German bishops. There's a whole host of very good reasons why the Pope might have hesitated in being more vocal, but nobody ever talked about a financial consideration, not that it was the overriding one, but that it was on sort of the long list of things that might have been there. And even if it wasn't the top of the list for Pius, it certainly would have been something that a person like Bernardino Nagaro running the finances would have been very aware of, that they were not only invested in some German companies, but more importantly, they were receiving this large share of money coming in from the German taxes that the Third Reich was collecting, and certainly any overt criticism or attack on the Third Reich by the Pope would, if, if it didn't lead to an invasion of Vatican City, would very quickly lead the Germans to say, you know what, 
we'll collect this money and keep it ourselves. So they would be cut off from uh, the church. So there, I think it was one of those little additional factors that may have played a role somewhere in the subconscious of the officials who were deciding what to do about and what to say on the German murders. And as stunning as the fact that Hitler was collecting payroll taxes for the Vatican is that the tax continued after Germany fell. The United States government continued to pay that tax in occupied Germany. It is really remarkable, and it continues to this day. Now, fewer people identify themselves as Catholic. So you would think, first of all, if you wanted to avoid the tax, you would just say, I'm not Catholic. But Germans in the 40s, 50s, 60s tended to be pretty honest about that, and they would go to Mass, and they would say, okay, I'm Catholic, and they would pay the tax grudgingly. In 2012, I believe, there was a case in which somebody said, a German citizen, I don't want to pay the tax. I don't really do anything, but I want to be buried Catholic. And I went to court, and the court held, the German court held, no, sorry, if you want to participate in anything, including even after you're dead in the Catholic faith, you want to be buried Catholic, then you've got to, uh, they call it pay to pray. Then you better pay now and remain a good Catholic. So it stays in force. It's also in Switzerland and Luxembourg. It's a few related countries nearby. Austria has a version of it, but it's never spread beyond that. I will tell you that I've often thought that the 1.2 billion number of Catholics if that became a universal application, the Catholics everywhere had to have the equivalent of a payroll tax deducted from their salaries to some 8%, that $1.2 billion would probably shift overnight to $700 million. You'd probably lose half a billion people that would say, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to pay for that. So it's rather remarkable that the German numbers stay as high as they are. It's incredible. And the idea of the rat lines running through Europe and the whole Cold War posturing after the Second World War over, and, and here half of Europe is saved and half of Europe falls to Bolshevism, which is part of the Pope's great fear, you know, to see Poland right. and a lot of the other countries that were 90% plus Catholic suddenly behind the Iron Curtain and officially atheists. It must have been an extraordinary trying time, and yet here's the, the Vatican Bank quietly still spinning away, making deals, channeling money, moving things around, and turning a great profit for the church. I mean, they invested wisely in a lot of Italian companies that bounced back, and here they end up owning a lot of them and placing a lot of their family members in key positions and running these companies. And Yeah, I think the end of the war is, you're right, a time for Pius XII, the wartime pope, and for the church that on the one hand is incredibly frustrating because it was almost as worst possible. The only thing that would have been worse is that the Soviets had taken over all of Europe, including Italy, but they had taken half of Europe, and the Pope had been trying to urge a peace to be struck. He didn't want the Allies to go for unconditional surrender. He didn't want them to beat Germany down to the very bone because he was afraid that if they did, and they were too weak, the Soviets might take advantage of that, and they did. So that was sort of, to him, the worst possible agreement. He didn't know then that Roosevelt had struck a deal with Stalin to sort of split Europe up, but he was later to find that out. And that horrified them. They were also very worried, as you know, in 46 and 47, right after the war, that Italy was going to go red. It was going to be the next country to go, not because the Soviets would necessarily do a land invasion, but they did fear that. But that in the first national elections, which were held in 48, that the country was going to vote to go red. It had a big active communist party. And that's when the church got the muscle of the Vatican Bank, which had made all this money in the war, sometimes not always with the most scrupulous method, but it emerged from the war and some questionable transactions after the war and some questions lingering over whether it became a repository, even a temporary one, for some gold that may have been ransacked from Croatia's national uh, reserves. It emerged from all of that to play a key role with American intelligence and the American government to funnel money to conservative politicians in Italy so that in that first election in 1948, the conservatives won 
the communists lost, and Italy stayed firmly democratic. It was a major victory for the Vatican, for the U.S., and the remnants of the Allies in that post-war period. Well, they certainly came a long way from the first elections after the Vatican lost all the papal states, and they told the Catholics not to participate in any of the general elections, and of course the people who participated weren't Catholic, and the results were uh, very anti-church. It's very interesting you say that, because even up to the time of Mussolini, the popes always kept saying, because they didn't like the idea of Catholics really being involved in secular life, so they kept saying, you know, don't get involved in the electoral process, don't vote, and the anti-clerical candidates who won those positions, you know, then would try to tax the church and do all these terrible things, and the church would say, inevitably, look at that, secular politics, it's filled with vipers, and, and it's a hornet's nest, and it's just terrible people, so stay away from it, Catholics, don't even go to the voting booth. And that just exacerbated the problem, as you said. It wasn't until... They allowed, as Pius did in the 48 elections, he had nuns essentially driving carts to take people to the polling places so they could vote. I mean, he used the entire apparatus to make sure that everybody turned out. He gave even the equivalent of some political speeches stumping for the Christian Democrats. It was unheard of. It's like Chicago machine politics. Yeah, that's right. It, you, used it, you used it very well. I never thought of it that way, but you're right. They would have been proud of Pius in Chicago. And he turned that vote out. And suddenly, when once the Vatican did get involved in that sense, they never left, because then the church and Italian politics have always had this sort of incestuous relationship going forward ever since the late 40s. Yeah, certainly the suspicion that the Vatican had against both American democracy and, and of course, Bolshevism, which they're terrified of because of the atheist component to it, and the idea that the only good government is maybe one that's run by a, a benign Catholic monarch is sort of an interesting thing. You know, there's the idea they didn't like separation of church and state. Yeah, they hated that idea. Your pluralism, just the idea that I mean, they always looked down on the American idea, horrified them that you would have a country in which church and state were separated, because they really are looking for the idea of a theocracy. And the popes, in my view, they are non-hereditary monarchs. There's no legislative power to really check them. There's no uh, court system, a Supreme Court that really checks them. The word of the pope is final uh, in the decree certainly of Vatican City and in terms of the finances and governance of the city-state. So you, you don't inherit it. You wait until one pope dies or in the old days until they were poisoned and, or until Benedict resigned and maybe set a new precedent. But on the whole, they very much like the idea of autocratic power. And the whole chaos of democracy was not to them thrilling and something they greeted with enthusiasm as great for the people. They sort of viewed it as chaotic mess that you couldn't just simply give a decree and order it, and so they never really were that enthusiastic about it. Well, that plays into the whole idea of American exceptionalism, the fact that we were a new experiment. It was something very different than some form of tyranny, whether it's a benign king or an absolute dictator or the bloody revolution of, of France kind of a thing. And it's interesting to see where they go. I think that at this point, the Pope and maybe a handful of others are still the only absolute monarchs in the world, in, in the current political mix of the world. Yeah, but you know, it's also interesting, Tom, that I think the other absolute monarchs in the world are also theocratic monarchs, because they're basically Islamic. To an extent, yes, there's a legislative body in Saudi Arabia, but the Saudi kings really call the shots as the royal family does. They do in Brunei, the royal family clearly does. The Emirates and in Qatar, there are also legislative bodies, but the royal family is pretty much dominant, and they're Islamic theocracy. So it's interesting to me that only in this combination of what I call religious states do we have sort of this authoritarian role in that sense. I don't mean necessarily in terms of authoritarian role like China or Singapore, but certainly the theocracies and authoritarian role goes along quite well with each other. Well, and that was why we have our separation of church and state, because of the long history of wedding 
theology or religion with the state apparatus, whether you're the pharaoh of ancient Egypt and you're both a god and the ruler of the country. So any act against you is both heresy and treason. Right. The Romans did the same thing when the emperors became living gods. You know, after that, you got the divine right of king, because a king in Christian Europe couldn't very well declare himself to be God, but he's the next best thing. Mm-hmm. That's right. That kind of thing. So these are sort of the last remnants. And we, of course, from our American sensibilities, look at this with a very jaundiced eye, saying you know, religion and state really should be kept apart, because when you put them together, you usually end up with poison. It's so interesting to me also as you say that, because, you know, you think of these officially Catholic countries in Europe, and especially Christian Europe, even if in the countries like in Northern Europe that are basically uh, Lutheran or Protestant, they're less religious in many ways today, although they have official religions. The Church of England in the UK, they've moved almost as a whole in Western Europe to be a more secular society than here in the United States where we have this division of church and state. We seem to be more caught up sometimes in the issues of religion as they relate to it than what I call the more relaxed Western Europeans who still claim to be a Catholic country or a Lutheran country but aren't as exercised necessarily about the issues of religion. So uh, it's an interesting divergence. I always have to kind of laugh when I hear all the, the litany of titles that Queen Elizabeth II has as, as the reigning monarch of Great Britain. And one of those is Defender of the Faith, which Henry VIII, of course, got from the Pope for defending Christian or Catholicism um, from the Lutheran expansion. You know, before he then switched over to Anglicanisms. But they, they managed to keep the title, even though they're no longer defending the Catholic Christian faith. That's true. And you certainly couldn't be, um, it would be very tough. My wife, as a matter of fact, is British, and I know from talking to her, it would be very hard for a Catholic to marry into that royal family, given the, uh, as you said, the, the monarch of, the, of England is also the protector of at least the faith as Henry VIII has established the Church of England. Maybe one day we'll see it, but I can't imagine anybody Islamic or Catholic marrying into the royal family anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know if it's still illegal or not, but it certainly would affect succession and other things. That's right. It would raise questions about the average Briton who may say, I don't know necessarily if I want to continue to fund the royal family if they can't even at least pretend to be defending the faith. As the Pope is now in Washington, D.C. and making his way across his first trip to America and talking to us about treatment of the poor and, and what we need to do in the world today, where do you see the apparatus that supports him in his mission proceeding in the future? I mean, we've gone through a number of scandals with him. We've had the, certainly the, the banker from the Bank of Arsino hanging from the Blackfriars Bridge and some other sordid financial chicanery going on. But where are we at now? Where is the Vatican Bank or the Vatican city-state moving? Well, I think it may be, in some ways, a stronger institution, both Vatican and the finances of the Vatican, the Vatican Bank going forward, than it was in the last half of the 20th century. And the reason for that is I really do think, as a reporter who's looked at this on and off for nine years, that the institution, as most institutions, will be stronger as a result of having some transparency of applying some oversight to it. It's one of the crossroads that the Vatican came to. It's either going to do that or not. And in some ways, their hand was forced. It wasn't just all of a sudden, you know, Benedict became Pope or Francis became Pope and then woke up one morning and said, let's clean it all up. Let's make it into a, a normal functioning financial institution and going forward, we'll make sure that we're solid and a member of the international community. In 99 and 2000, Italy had to decide if it wanted to join the euro or not and did the common currency. When they did, that meant the Vatican was in a quandary because they used Italian lira for their own currency. And the Vatican decided to join the euro as well. They didn't realize then, Tom, that that meant that at some point in the future, Brussels and the European Union would want some oversight of their equivalent of their Federal Reserve, the Vatican Bank. They would want to make sure that it was compliant with European regulations and international laws on financing. So 
they have been in there twice for evaluation. That's something the Vatican never allowed any foreign power outside evaluators to take a look at any of the records of the Vatican Bank until 2011. The Vatican never had a law against money laundering. It wasn't against the law until 2011. They never had a law against the financing of international terror until 2011. They never had a limit on the amount of physical cash, gold, or whatever else they could bring into the city-state. It was unlimited. Now they've limited it to 10,000 euros. You have to make a declaration, just like every other country in Europe. So I think that what's happened is, as a result of joining the euro, they've had to come into the 21st century, and that what Francis has done, he's done it with some vigor and enthusiasm, which is to his credit. You could have had a pope in there who was dragging his feet and doing it at one mile a minute. Francis is really pushing it ahead very quickly. So that if this bank gets to the point, which it's in the process of doing, to become a functioning sort of cross-hybrid between Federal Reserve and Goldman Sachs, it will serve as the National Bank of Vatican City, the state. It will be productive. It will have billions of dollars. It will turn to its largest profit ever last year. And it will make the Vatican more than ever a compliant member of the international financial community, which I think is good for the church and good for Francis and good for future popes. So I have a rather optimistic view of it today after having covered a lot of decades of very, very foul behavior. I think those bad decades are really mostly in the past now. Well, I think we'll leave it with that, that you've uh, done an outstanding job dredging through the swamp that was post-Borgia Vatican (laughs) finance all the way through uh, to the present day. You think about uh, a 200-year history of any financial institution, and and most people kind of roll their eyes, but this book is absolutely fascinating. And as is the case with most history, it's not the facts and figures and the dates and when things happen, but it's the personalities that are involved. And there are some fascinating characters, both good and bad, in this novel. You know, it's not a novel, it's the truth, that make the thing read like a novel. I guess that's why I'm getting stuck in with it. I can imagine creating characters like this in my books, and and these are very real people that you've animated. Yeah, it's very interesting. A thrilling story that the pages fly through. Well, there's no better phrase than a novelist to say it reads like a novel, so knowing your craft, I really do appreciate that. And I must say, though, that it's the very people who are attracted to become clerics and then move up in the power structure, and those who are elected over time and view themselves and consider themselves and the faithful, consider them as the vicar of Christ on earth, the actual representative of Jesus Christ on earth, you have to be a unique individual. And that succession of popes, that's the spine through which this story is told, as you know. So you almost have, by the very nature of the history you're covering, a guarantee that it's not going to be boring. Yeah, and this is the last true remnant of the Roman Empire. Right. The Pax Romana has evolved into what became modern Western Europe and all, but this has the imprint of a Roman emperor on it that started the whole organizational structure that, that is carried forward now for 2,000 years. I will just leave you with this, which is one of the things that's very interesting, is the I know that some of the Italian cardinals, they are no longer a majority. They are very anxious to get the papacy back when Francis finishes his tenure, whenever that is, because they lost it in, in 78 to a Polish cardinal, and he became John Paul II. That was the first time in 400 years an Italian was not also the Bishop of Rome and running the church. And then comes the next election in 2005, and they, they try to get it back to the Italians, but they end up disliking each other more than they can agree to support just one candidate. They lose it again this time to a German. Now they've lost it for the third time in the 2013 election to the first Pope from the Americas, so a South American has grabbed it. So they want it back because they do view it, some of them, in terms of history, as what you just said, 
the, the head of the church, the Pope, is also the Bishop of Rome. So for a long time, the Italians thought it should only be an Italian, because the, the bishop of every other city is a native of that area. The, the bishop who runs, or the cardinal who becomes the head of the diocese in Argentina, or Buenos Aires is Argentinian, the cardinal who is head of Munich is German, and the cardinal who is head of New York or Chicago is American. So they thought that an Italian should always be the bishop of Rome, hence the pope. They've lost that, but they would like to get that back in that continuation of the Roman Empire. We will find out if they're able to do it, but the next conclave comes around, Keep your eyes on the Italians. They'll try to consolidate around one character. If they don't get it, it's only because they've fallen into the typical Italian, I'm half Italian routine of arguing with each other more than they can with agreeing with each other. Well, in the meantime, we should keep an eye on Pope Francis's consistories and to see who he elevates to the red hat. That's exactly right. As the older cardinals. The last two popes have been very good about broadening beyond Italy the borders of where the cardinals are. That's right. There's nothing better than a non-Italian pope coming to the forefront and then reducing the power of the Italian cardinals by uh, appointing more cardinals outside of Italy, and that will, I think, continue to happen here. I'm certain it will. Well, thank you so much. Tom, it was a real treat. Thank you. I've had the pleasure of talking with Gerald Posner, the author of God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Again, you just heard from two best-selling authors for the price of one. Our Man on the Line was thriller author Tom Grace. If you enjoy the novels of such titans as the late Vince Flynn, I hope you'll check out Tom's Dolan Kilkenny series, too. I know you'll enjoy it. You can learn more at TomGrace.net. And, of course, thanks to our guest, attorney, author, and investigative journalist, Gerald Posner. You can learn more about his work at Posner.com, and by following him at Gerald Posner on Twitter. If today's conversation piqued your interest and you'd like to pick up a copy of God's Bankers on the history of money and power at the Vatican or one of Tom Grace's thriller novels, please click through the Amazon banner at historyauthor.com. We get a few coins in our collection plate every time you do. Again, many thanks to both of our authors, Gerald Posner and Tom Grace. Let us know what you thought of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. And remember, please favorite our iHeartRadio channel and rate us on iTunes if you want us to keep on keeping on. Those reviews are incredibly important to our continued growth. Well, that's it for this week's special Pope in America edition of The History Author Show. Join us next time when we'll fire up our time machine and whisk you off to the past. Thanks for listening. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.